Coming to you from high in the hills of Oakland, California, this is Radio Free Cannabis, voice of the global cannabis freedom movement. I'm your host, Steve D'Angelo. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Hello, friends, and welcome to Radio Free Cannabis. Coming to you from high in the hills of Oakland, California, we are the voice of the global cannabis freedom movement. Translated into 195 different languages via the YouTube auto-translate function. And if you like this content, please remember to subscribe and share on the YouTube channel. Quick shout out to my friends at Liberty Hemp for these very cool Highline hemp face masks, antiviral, natural wicking properties. Thanks a lot for your comments and suggestions. Please keep them coming in so we can keep on tooling this show to meet your interest and meet your needs. Today, I'm going to have as my guest two of the boldest and strongest leaders of the cannabis movement and industry in their respective countries, Canada and Mexico. So with me, we will have three countries present for this conversation. And what we're going to be doing is just taking a look at the process of reform and industry building across these three countries, how each country and the developments in each country has influenced the developments in the other country. Of course, in 1937, the United States made cannabis legal all across the country. And starting in the early 1960s, went on a concerted and very determined and vicious campaign to force other countries all around the world to make cannabis illegal, if it wasn't legal there, illegal there yet, uh, and to increase the penalties and enforcement of those laws. Now, since uh, 1991, we've begun to see the rolling back of this global prohibition of cannabis. It started with the passage of Proposition P in San Francisco by my good friend, Dennis Perone, rest in power and love, Dennis, who was a Vietnam vet and gay man who really started and kicked off the medical cannabis movement and passed that very first medical cannabis law. Since then, over the course of about 30 years, we've seen the cannabis reform movement spread from that small beachhead uh, all across the United States. There's about a dozen states now where cannabis is fully legal. Most of the rest of the states in the United States have made medical cannabis legal. We've seen uh, a great deal of change all around the world. Uh, Europe now has medical cannabis laws in much of Europe. Lebanon, just a couple of weeks ago, became the first Middle Eastern country to move towards substantial reform of their cannabis laws. And of course, today we'll be talking about what's going on in Canada and Mexico. Trying to understand this process of how reform and industry building is spreading around the world. And really, our main object here is going to be figuring out how we can accelerate it, how we can move this movement more rapidly around the world, how each of us in our respective countries can help the efforts of our fellow activists and entrepreneurs in other parts of the world. So today I have with me uh, Abby Roach. 
Abby is a longtime cannabis entrepreneur and activist uh, out of Canada. Uh, she's known best probably as the founder of the Hotbox Cafe, which for 20 plus years has been an oasis of cannabis freedom in Toronto, Canada. She now has completed a very interesting transition and is a senior product specialist for the government of Ontario, Canada, helping them find the very best cannabis products to supply to licensed dispensaries in the province of Ontario. Lorena Beltran is from Mexico. Lorena is also a activist and an entrepreneur uh, with uh, a long history in cannabis. We'll get to explore that a little bit further. Lorena is, is the founder and uh, CEO of Cannabis Salute. I went to so many different cannabis conferences last year. Um, it was such a wonderful time that they've kind of blended together. But the conference that Lorena put on in Mexico City uh, was a gathering of both business leaders and scientists and medical professionals really focused on sharing knowledge and helping Mexico uh, move forward with its reform. And let me start with you, uh, Lorena, if you could um, maybe just tell us how this all started for you. When was the first time that you heard that there was such a thing as a cannabis reform movement and how did you decide to engage with it? Thank you, Steve. Uh, everything started in 2015. I was working in a company in Colorado and we had the visit of a Mexican family. They were looking for a product to bring it, they were gonna bring it legally into Mexico without a law, no regulation, nothing whatsoever. So they asked uh, us for help to bring the documents they needed in order to take their case to court and be able to bring a CBD product for their little girl who uh, was suffering from epilepsy. So that was the beginning of the activism to push for a legislation for medical cannabis in Mexico. Me being the only Mexican in this company in Colorado, I was able to help the family and we just started this journey uh, informing and educating society in Mexico and of course legislators. So in 2015, we started traveling. I started traveling back to Mexico uh, to give conferences inside the Senate, inside the Mexican Congress. So that's where the real activism started towards uh, the legalization of medical cannabis. And it was two years of a lot of work, a lot of lobbying. And we were able to help pass the first medical cannabis law in 2017. So after that passed, then I decided to move back to Mexico. And that same year, we founded uh, Cannabis Salud as the first international medical cannabis Congress in this country. So from there, uh, we talked, took the responsibility to educate uh, our country from media to legislators to patients to doctors and after that we were waiting a long time for a regulation to be published from that law. So that's how everything started um, in the legal process in Mexico it was 2015 with um, the little girl winning in the court and they were able to bring the product legally for the first time. 
and then having this first law in 2017. And from there, you know, we continue doing loving and education. And yeah, Mexico is still, you know, a little bit in, in the limbo, but we're moving forward. Yeah, Mexico's clearly moving forward now. And, and Lorena, just to move a little bit before that, tell me when you first started, started hearing about legal cannabis, such a thing as legalized cannabis. Right. Uh, well, I'm from Chihuahua, Mexico, the north part of Mexico, and it's, we have a border with Texas. So I will work a, right on Texas, El Paso, Texas, and Ciudad Juarez in Chihuahua, and it was it's still considered one of the most dangerous borders in the whole uh, world. So when I started hearing about the legalization of cannabis was around 2010 when I heard something about medical cannabis being legal in Colorado because I have family in Colorado. So I will follow the news of that state. And after leaving during really tough years in the border, seeing the drug, uh, the, the war on drugs, pretty harsh and seeing all the violence around, we got very scared. It became a ghost town where we were leaving. So being a single mom, I just decided to move to Colorado with my family. And a few years after, we have the legalization of recreational cannabis. That right there, just, it was an idea that just, you know, exploded in my mind because we were having all these problems in Mexico, people fighting and killing each other uh, because of the drug trafficking, including cannabis. And then here I am in a state where now dispensaries are in every corner selling cannabis, you know, and then we have the tax part and all all those taxes going to education and health. And I was like, this is great. We need to do something about uh, all this in Mexico. So that's when I decided, you know, to learn everything about the industry because I always knew I was going to go back to Mexico and try to legalize cannabis. And, you know, I, I was looking at it as the first step uh, to bring peace into my country. Of course, I knew it was not going to solve all of our problems, but it was the first uh, step forward, you know, into that direction. And that's, that's how I learned about legalization, thanks to Colorado. Really interesting. So, you know, even in Mexico, uh, you heard about the cannabis reform movement, and then you were basically displaced by the war on drugs and, and the uh, underground trade. Uh, go to Colorado and there uh, experience firsthand legalization and see the obvious application to uh, see the obvious application to Mexico. The really interesting, uh, just in your own personal story, the dynamics of various different countries. Uh, Abby, same question to you. You know, when did this idea of legalizing cannabis first come to your attention and how did you first engage? Um, I started out uh, as a really young woman with a lot of spunk and a lot of great ideas. And uh, I didn't know very much about um, legal anything. I just knew that I really enjoyed cannabis and I, I really wanted to get into it. It was 2000 and uh, it was kind of counterculture at the time. And I opened a little head shop in, in 
Toronto that was called Rotorama. And as I progressed in my years, uh, the laws started to change. So um, in 2001, um, the Terry Parker decision, which made medical marijuana in Canada legal, essentially, uh, occurred. And that triggered the MMAR, which made medical marijuana uh, legal. And in 2003, uh, there were several uh, legal proceedings that happened, as well as the Kirtani government uh, trying to legalize cannabis, and they failed. Um, and then there was a, a possession charge that had gone through, and the argument uh, was you can't have um, cannabis be legal for one person without amending uh, the, the legal rights of everyone. You have to amend the, the, the Cannabis Act, right? Or the Drug Act. Um, and cannabis possession became de facto uh, legal in the, in the province of Ontario. And I, at the time, decided to open up the hot box, which was a lounge. Uh, and this was after visiting uh, BC. And I went to a place called Brunt, Blunt Brothers. I went to Jamaica. I experienced, for the first time, a, a, a culture where, where really... Um, you know, the consumption of cannabis was very much a part of people's everyday lives. And I took those two concepts and came back to Toronto and expanded Rotorama into a, um, into a lounge with a store. Um, and as time went on, obviously, you know, laws were changing, things were shifting, and advocacy really became a part of staying alive. Um, how do I keep my business alive? And utilizing, uh, moving my business forward and, and use, utilizing advocacy to move that business forward, we sort of moved the needle on where, um, you know, where possession stood and, and how people felt and, and social concepts around the normalization of cannabis. And then in 2016, when, um, when the Trudeau, uh, you know, Trudeau ran for prime minister, he ran heavily on on a platform of legalization, and uh, you know that was an incredible, an incredible uh, campaign to watch Canadians get behind the idea of legalization. After at that point, I'd been in business for sixteen years. I fought, you know, bylaw inspectors and police and all kinds of levels of government. And at that point, I'd been through three different levels of government uh, changing as well, three times. So we had municipal, federal, provincial governments in sixteen years. Every four to six years, they change. So you constantly have to pick it, pick and choose your battles of where you're going to go. And all of a sudden, Canadian society came came behind the Liberal Party and said, yeah, you know, I support this. And they won on a platform of legalization. And in 2018, uh, cannabis was legalized. So what a journey. Amazing. Yeah. Um, and of course, <laughs> I was uh, sort of experiencing this journey a little bit from the other side of the border. Um, you know, here in the United States, in California, we really kicked off the movement for medical cannabis in 1991. It took us until 1996 to actually get a state law passed. But then we, we, we kind of stalled a little bit. Um, and it was right around then that Canada started coming on. And we saw this you know, major case in 1981. How was it from, from the other side of the border, Abby? Were, were, were Canadians watching what was going on in the United States? Did it influence the movement there? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I remember in, when Colorado legalized watching CNN and going, wow, like incredible that this managed to happen. And then watching it state by state falling. And by the time that the Trudeau, uh, you know, government came into power, we knew that this was it. This was the end. And now that Canada has taken 
the role of being the first uh, G7, G20 country to federally legalize uh, following the steps of U.S. states. Um, I know there was a lot of consultation being done. Uh, I I hosted a, a few people from uh, from the U.S. side coming up to check out what we were doing prior to legalization. And then I know our counterparts from Canada flew down to, you know, California, Colorado, and really in Washington state, really checked out what how they did it, what was happening. Um, and I think there were so many lessons that were learned on both sides of what went wrong and what went right. So I think, you know, not only did the, the, the advocates and, and the activists watch what was happening on the other side of the border, but I think the politicians were watching very, very closely as well. And I think it really gave rise to the concept that a political party could run on a platform of legalization and get the majority of Canadian support. Thanks, Abby. Well, we know, of course, in Canada, cannabis is completely legal now, and we'll talk a little bit more about what that means. Uh, Lorena, maybe you could just update us briefly on what the current situation is in Mexico and where you see it going in the near future. Okay, yeah, because right now there's a lot of confusion around what's happening in Mexico. So to be um, brief and clear, we have two scenarios. We have a law that passed in 2017 for medical cannabis. This means that we can import medical cannabis products um, and we can also cultivate and, and manufacture products for medical purposes. Also, cultivation is allowed for research. That's it. Um, we don't have a regulation published on this law. That's why, that's why we haven't been able to commercialize legally, completely legal in Mexico, even though we have a law, but it lacks a regulation. And it's been over three years that we have been waiting for this regulation to be published. The Supreme Court uh, ruled the health ministry to publish this regulation in August. However, because of the pandemic and you know, this whole situation that we're living, they, the health ministry asked for an extra month. So they should be publishing the regulation of the law of 2017 on September, 2020. Hopefully they don't push it again. The second scenario, we have a proposed bill that it's been discussed in the Senate since 2018. This proposed bill will allow us um, to regulate all the uses of cannabis, medical, recreational, and of course, industrial hemp. So uh, this proposed bill was voted in general terms. That's how we, we call it in Mexico. They voted in the Senate and see in general terms if, if everybody agrees with this proposed bill. It was voted this last March, 2020, and it was approved in general terms. So the next step was to approve this proposed bill in detail. So the senators were gonna go article by article and just make a few modifications in order to take this proposed bill into the uh, Camara de Diputados, the deputy camera, right? And after that, uh, this bill, it's going to be published and then we have 180 days to publish the regulation of the law. So again, because of the situation of the pandemic, 
they weren't able to vote again on this law just to see the details of the article. So now they push it uh, to vote between September and December. So hopefully this bill passes during those months at the end of the year, because that will allow us to fully uh, produce cannabis in Mexico for all harvest, uh, manufacture, commercialization, import, export, for medical and recreational, have dispensaries, uh, also a plant limit per person to have our own plants at home for personal consumption. The, uh, there, this bill also talks about um, associations, which are like cannabis clubs. So the whole package. So we're very excited about this and waiting uh, for our, the Senate to vote again on this proposed bill towards the end of this year. So those are the two scenarios we have in Mexico right now. Well, that's, that's good news. The process of reform seems to be continuing to unfold in Mexico through various different means and through various different levels of bureaucracy. Um, Lorena, could you talk a little bit about how events in Canada and in the United States have influenced the process of reform in Mexico? Yes. So I know Mexico, uh, our legislators, when they were writing this proposed bill and the discussions that have been happening for the last two years, um, Definitely, they were looking at the regulation of Uruguay, of the United States, and of Canada. So if you read our proposed bill, it's pretty much like a copy-paste of different things from some states in the United States and mainly Canada. Canada and Uruguay are our main reference because are the only two countries that have a federal regulation. Right. So because Mexico wants to regulate all the uses of cannabis, that's why these two countries were mainly the point of reference, because Mexico is going to legalize at a federal level as well. So um, but definitely United States has been a country that our legislators have been traveling to a lot, you know, to see how everything works from cultivation to final product um tracking systems you know mainly in colorado and california um but definitely canada has the greatest influence on our regulation i know legislators have traveled to this country as well and uh, mainly because you know we we hear on the news everything about the public companies and this whole movement of public companies uh, started or just grew so much in, in Canada. So we think that, you know, the main investors are going to come from Canada. So that's also um, has influenced us a lot. We are, we already seen the biggest Canadian public companies coming to Mexico, sitting down at the Senate, sharing their experiences, but also trying, you know, to, uh, have a one foot in Mexico already. You know, we've seen these Canadian companies trying to do lobbying and because they have the resources, we know these public companies, you know, have, have a lot of investors and they have money. So 
unfortunately they don't they don't know exactly how mexico works so they just you know try to do the things the way they do it in canada so it just hasn't worked for them but definitely public companies you know have been um a spark for many other companies in mexico you know to push and move forward and and do a, a more intense lobbying because we need these investments as well in mexico right so but definitely there's a lot of uh, wrong information that's coming from Canada as well, because we also see on the news that a lot of these companies are failing. So there's a lot of confusion right now in Mexico. Are they doing the right thing? You know, because they were able to get all these investors and their public companies, but then we see their numbers and a lot of them are failing. And what should Mexico do? Are we a, a did we take the right decision to copy paste a lot of the regulation that Canada has? Because it seems that no regulation whatsoever in the world has worked perfectly. There are a lot of mistakes. And I think Mexico needs to be careful when it looks at all the regulations. I, I would echo that caution. I think that uh, it's very, very important as we unroll the process of reform around the world that we learn from what's happening in various different places. Um, in California today, we have basically a failed legalization effort because of overtaxation, because of overregulation. And uh, I think there's some important lessons for other activists around the world to learn from that. But since you mentioned the Canadian public companies, let me turn to Abby and uh, and let's let's start putting our, our, our arms around this elephant in the room, Abby. Um, what role do you see the Canadian public companies having played in the process of reform? You know, I I have this conversation a lot. I'm going to take the question back a couple of steps. So, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, craft and this and that. You know, it's very, very important that small producers get into the legal market 100%. Um, and I think what happened in Canada is because we had to serve an entire federal country from coast to coast, uh, Canada is a very large country, one of the biggest in the world, um, it took sense, you know, it made sense to the Canadian government to take the big companies that were servicing the medical marijuana market and license them uh, to sell commercially uh, to the adult use market. And in order to provide enough cannabis to the adult use market, it, it, it did make sense. But what happened is that it created um, sort of a bubble, this imaginary bubble of, of, you know, oh, you know, if we, if we, the bigger we get, the more money we're going to make. And that's not necessarily true. And now you're seeing two years later, those, those companies that, that we speak of that were huge companies that took in tons of investor money, that investor money has to make money back. And when it's not making money back, um, you know, those shares convert and, and different people take, over, take the helms of those companies. And uh, I think right now what's happening is that those big companies are being reined in uh, by the investors saying you don't need 30 million square feet of grow space. <laughs> you probably need a quarter of that and grow as you need to. You don't need to have all that working. You don't need to be in a hundred different countries. You probably need to focus on the markets that you're in right now and, and make money out of that and then grow from there. So you're seeing a huge shift right now in the Canadian market. Um, and as I say that, 
We also have uh, microprocessing, which is um, and microcultivation and nursery licenses that came into play in the last year, which allow for smaller cultivators, so for micros and and uh, smaller smaller people cultivating smaller processors could come into the, the field and level it out. So now you're seeing companies that have fantastic product. They don't have as much square footage. They don't have as much money, but they're producing fantastic product with a real focus on the consumer and a real keen eye, um, you know, and they don't have that fear of the legacy market where they, you know, they're not trying to phase it out. They're trying to be inclusive or come out of the legacy market. So they're bringing that expertise and that knowledge um, of how to grow, how to process, and also the customer. So there's a really big shift. And I think you're going to see on the world on the world stage, those big companies that were trying to get into every single, um, it, you know, every single government, every single uh, sort of sector, um, they're not going to go there anymore. I think right now the focus is on making it work and making the companies that they have um, make money where they are. So, so some of the big boys that you imagine are, are going to come in and, and invest in are, they're already on phase three of investment and, and, those investors want their money back and they want to make it work. Yeah, I think that, you know, we're seeing uh, this industry and this movement uh, playing out and in nothing huge. And the cannabis industry, I think one day is going to be by dollar value, the largest industry in the world. Nothing that big happens all at once. There's various mm -hmm. different iterations and we learn and we move forward. You know, from my point of view, as a Californian, as an American, the role of the Canadian public corporations and corporate cannabis in general has, um, has really been a mixed blessing um, uh, or a two-edged sword, depending on how you want to look at it. On the one hand, the legitimacy that comes from having cannabis companies that are traded on the Canadian public exchanges and the amount of capital that can be raised on those exchanges has really supercharged growth in both California and across the United States. And it has created uh, companies, you know, like Acreage, for example, which now has John Boehner, who was an extremely anti-cannabis politician, uh, speaker of the house for the Republican party in the United States. Uh, for many years, one of our most determined opponents, who now is a cannabis advocate. And so that kind of supercharging of reform, I think, is important. And I appreciate corporate cannabis for its ability to do that all around the world. I think if we really want cannabis to be in the mainstream of commerce, if we really want this plant to get into the hands of everybody around the world who needs it, corporate cannabis is a necessity. It's something that must happen. But at the same time, I have a concern. And the concern goes to what you were talking about, Abby, that there's a cast of musical chairs in the large publicly traded companies. And the people who occupy those chairs sooner or later are people who are going to be most concerned with and in fact have legal obligations to be prioritizing shareholder return. And many of those people know a lot about public markets. They may know a lot about petroleum or gold mining, but many of them have come to cannabis quite recently. And 
the challenge for me is that now they are in charge of a vast amount of media, a vast amount of marketing, uh, a vast amount of the ability to tell the story of cannabis around the world now lies in the hands of corporate players. And for the most part, I don't think that those folks really know the story of cannabis well enough or understand the plant well enough to adequately perform that teaching function. So hopefully moving forward, we'll continue to see this process of, of integration. It's so wonderful to me to see my friend, a hardcore cannabis lover and activist, Abby Roach, now bringing her influence to bear in the government of Ontario. It's, it's really a wonderful thing. Let's think a little bit now about, um, about how, we can, how we can make this better. Lorena, um, let me turn to you. Do you have any thoughts about how the level of cool international cooperation that we've been experiencing in the movement and the industry uh, could be enhanced? Are there ways that uh, those of us here in the United States, those of us in Canada uh, and around the world uh, potentially could be of assistance to you in Mexico as you're in the earlier stages of your reform effort? Yes, definitely. We need a lot of help. We need more international experience, especially of those countries and states in the United States that already have a regulation in place. Uh, we need to know what is working in those countries and what is not. And also, it will be very important to have uh, an opinion, uh, suggestions, recommendations uh, for our country in terms of what would be best when you consider all the different um, issues that we confront here in Mexico when it comes to government corruption uh, along with the organized crime, the drug on war, the, the war on drugs, I'm sorry, that um, still going on here in Mexico. Um, as well as the negative stigma that most of our society still has around this plant. And it's normal because we talk about cannabis, marijuana, and people still think, you know, violence, blood. Um, how is this really going to work, um, benefit our country? So if we can have that experience, you know, from um, leaders in the industry around the world, it will definitely help us so much to clarify doubts, to work together on a strategy for Mexico, because everybody's looking at Mexico as a potential, um, as one of the main producers of cannabis, as one of the main countries to really um, have a successful industry, but I think we definitely need to work together because we have so much potential. We see the interest of public companies in Canada, of companies in Colombia as well, companies in the United States, in Europe, that really, really want to get into Mexico, that are so ready to invest, that really want to start working here. Um, but again, we need to make sure that all these people agree to work hand on hand with Mexico for the Mexicans, first of all, for our domestic market, 
you know, for our society. If you want to come and do business in Mexico, is because you really think that this is going to benefit in many different ways, in a social impact, economic impact, an environmental impact, right? Um, Mexico doesn't need just another company that just wants to take over and that just wants to buy the land of our, of our small farmers because there's a huge need in our country for employment, to reactivate agriculture. Um, so this is such a good opportunity for Mexico. It's a huge opportunity, the cannabis industry. Mexico is known you know, around the world to have the best marijuana, which is not true, but you know, for many generations, <laughs> um, this has been growing in Mexico, you know, and, and it's been uh, the the um, main business for these small farmers. So, yeah, definitely international help for sure, but not just to come and take over, but to really establish real solutions with us for, for our country because it's hard, it's hard. That's why regulation has been taking so many years because it's not easy to deal with corruption and organized crime. You know, um, we have to be very careful, but at the same time, as I mentioned, this can really, really benefit Mexico. And if it benefits Mexico, you know, then it will have an effect around the world because we can be an example for those countries that are, that are not doing the right thing for their society. No. Um... Both of you are very good friends of mine. And so I know that both of you are concerned about the social impact of the cannabis industry. How do we build an industry that is just, that is sustainable? And Lorena, you were touching on that in, uh, in Mexico. Uh, Abby, uh, coming from the perspective of a country where the process of reform is a bit further along, do you have any suggestions on how Mexico might be able to better structure its industry, some things that it might be able to do to try and help us move towards this, uh, not just, you know, new industry, but really a new kind of industry? Definitely. So, you know, we have uh, what formerly NAFTA, we now have a new free trade agreement between all three countries. Um, I think really key and important as the US goes into federal legalization, which I strongly believe that no matter if it's a Republican or Democrat next, it's gonna happen. Um, the cards are, are written into the future, right? And uh, Mexico is coming along as well. I think it's really important that we structure a, a sort of a uniform uh, industry that matches all three countries. So we don't have regulations that are vastly different and also standards that are vastly different. This will create a, a much easier path towards import and export and trade between the three countries. That's number one, which opens up to a much larger scale, um, which opens up the industry to far more people. When you have a very small industry, um, it, it really creates a bubble that is pushed by money and not really by by quality or knowledge. So really important that we we create an industry number one that's open. Um, number two, important that we push the industry to be inclusive of the people who were in it prior. Um, you know, some of the most successful companies out there and the most successful brands that I see in Canada are ones that really included people um, from the legacy market, ones who have diverse boards, uh, ones who have people from 
all different colors and walks of life. It's important that your customers, no matter what industry you're in, and this doesn't just stand for cannabis, this goes for shoes, clothes, food. It's important that your consumer uh, can relate to your product and to your brand and to your company in order to be successful. And I think this is a lesson beyond regulations. This is a lesson to actual uh, commercialization of, of cannabis as a consumer packaged good, right? If you create an inclusive company, if you create an inclusive brand, if you have people that look like a lot of different people and, and come from different backgrounds, not only do you diversify um, your your board and your employees, but you diversify the opinions and the views that stand behind your brand. And that's really important considering we come from a absolutely international continent, right? It's a continent of immigrants. Um, we come from all over the place, all over the world. So it's important that we, uh, we, we hone that. And cannabis is such a, a communal and, you know, it's, it's just so communal. We just need to be able to to carry that into the commercial part and the regulatory part of, of cannabis. It's, uh, you know, when I go to work every day now, I, you know, when I owned the hot box, diversity was extremely important to me. It's important to me that my staff look like the people who they served and, and could share experiences and backgrounds with them. And when I walk into my work now, it, I remember the first day, it was so amazing to me. I work for, you know, for a government entity right now. Um, it is so diverse. Uh, you know, they, they really have taken um, cannabis and, and the industry to where it should be. Um, there's people from all different colors, all different walks of life. Uh, most of our senior leadership team are women. Um, and then they, they brought me in, which was a shocker, to bring in uh, a Jewish woman of Israeli descent who is like a whatever, <laughs> you know, but with 20 years of experience um, in cannabis in the legacy market. And they brought me in, even though I don't have a, a university education, they brought me in as, on a senior level because I have 20 years of experience and I understand the consumer. And that's what I would recommend for every company and every government to do is include the people that, that built this and know the, the industry, they understand the consumers, and also be inclusive of, of diverse opinions, backgrounds, and, uh, and people. Yeah, I, I think uh, that you're touching on, on something that's really important. Um, there's a hope amongst the cannabis community, I think even beyond the cannabis community, that the industry that we're building will create companies, put companies out in the field that will give consumers the opportunity to vote with their dollars, to be able to support those companies who really implement the values that cannabis teaches us into their business operations. Um, I certainly hope that that happens moving into the future, but it depends on a highly educated, activated and committed cannabis consumer base. So if you consume cannabis and you're listening to this podcast, make sure that you know to the degree you can where your cannabis come from, who's making it, how are the workers that are producing that cannabis being treated, what's the environmental impact of that cannabis operation, how is the money that's being made from it spread around, is the company diverse, does it have women involved in leadership positions, does it have indigenous people, people of color. Uh, these are the kinds of questions that the cannabis consumer base all around the world 
needs to be asking if we really want to realize this huge hope, this huge potential of the cannabis industry. Lorena, um, let me turn to you. I know that here in the United States, we have attempted to use the legislative process, the licensing process, to try and drive a more diverse, more sustainable, more just cannabis industry. Are there any efforts like that going on in Mexico? Any efforts to include indigenous communities or small uh, landholders or other people who, women for that matter, who are um, generally not, not terribly well represented in the mainstream of Mexican commerce? Yes, and we can see that inclusion in the proposed bill, the one that's gonna be voted towards the end of the year. In this proposed bill, we see that legislators are considering small and medium farmers as priority when it comes to getting licenses for cultivation. Um, there's a, an article in this proposed bill that says that regular companies like mine or myself, I'm not able to be vertically integrated meaning that I cannot get more than one license per company, which is also a little bit um, complicated, you know, when you're starting an industry in a country like Mexico, because if I only get a license to grow, we all know if we have a grow, uh, an exterior grow, anything can happen because we cannot control the environment and we can lose, for example, half of the crop, in order to recover that investment, um, it would be great if I can, you know, process that plant into oil and sell that in order to recover what I invested in my growth. However, I cannot do that as how the proposed bill is right now. That's subject to change, hopefully. But um, small farmers are able to get all the licenses. And we have five types of licenses on this proposed bill which is for cultivation, manufacturing, commercialization. Um, and commercialization means dispensaries and import and export license and the research license. So these small farmers and the people that have been in this industry, I mean, in the illegal space are gonna be given this opportunity to be vertically integrated, which is great you know, for them. Um, of course, they're gonna need a lot of guidance because these groups, um, the only thing they know mainly is to grow, then, you know, to be vertically integrated, they need to have the knowledge um, on the rest of the processes and also to be able to uh, explore the international markets and be able to export and stuff. So I know there's gonna be a, a a mechanism where we all gonna have to work together. But definitely for me, it's great that they can be vertically integrated. Um, they're also talking about uh, a percentage of, their, of the plant material that needs to be um, bought in these areas where small farmers are cultivating. For example, again, uh, my company, if I'm producing X amount of, of hectares, a 20%, I need to buy it from a small farmer. 
just like Colombia, but Colombia is 10% that you need to buy from small farmers. But we see in Colombia that this hasn't worked. Like people are not buying this 10% from small farmers or indigenous communities, or if they're buying it, they're just throwing it away because they think it's not compliant or it's not a plant mater uh, material that's gonna work for the purpose of the company, which is pretty sad because if the regulation is establishing that it's to work together and really help these communities and the indigenous groups. It's not just to, okay, well, check, I'm gonna do what the law says, but you know, just um, on the surface, not really getting involved in, in, in having you know, a better industry for the country. So I see that uh, on the proposed bill um, I think there's still uh, uh, many things that need, be, that need to be considered, like uh, also giving priority to women, you know, um, because at the end of the day, if you look back, you know, in the whole history of this legislative uh, process, the main people that have been moving the main, um, the most important pieces in this process have been women. So for example, just briefly, the first person to get an import permit for a medical product was the little girl, Grace, right? Of course, through the help of uh, her family, but it was news all over the world, in mainly in Mexico. The little girl, Grace, got the first import permit. That opened up you know, the, the, the real activism and it helped us uh, push for, for a law that was published in 2017. Then we have a woman, which is Olga Sanchez Cordero, who was the one that proposed the bill that it's been discussed in the Senate. And then we have, um, she was also the first person to approve in the Supreme Court because before Olga Sanchez was a Senator, she was a judge in the Supreme Court. So she was the first one to approve a permit for a group of people to grow their plants at home. So thanks to that, we have a jurisdiction. So now it's unconstitutional not to let us grow our plants at home for personal consumption. And that was this woman, Olga Sanchez. And then um, we have this big organization, nonprofit foundations as well, that have been doing the strongest lobbying in the Senate in all the leaders of these organizations are women. So um, that makes me really happy and hopefully people acknowledge the work that we are doing. And of course the moms, of course the mothers of the patients, you know, the warriors that are always there outside the health ministry in the Congress with their kids, you know, on wheelchairs. And, and we've seen this around the world that women, the moms of the patients have been the main activist for medical cannabis. So um, definitely I would like to see uh, more on this proposed bill that can really help us as women thrive in this industry in a country that's ruled by a lot of mach machos, macho men. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's something that I've noticed as I've traveled around the world too, is that many of our strongest leaders around the world are women. And I hadn't really planned on highlighting that in this episode, because I think the two of you are just incredibly bold and strong leaders on your own right, whether you're women or not. 
but let's go there since we've gone there. Abby, um, what are what are your thoughts? What's it been like to be a woman in the cannabis industry, both in the uh, prior to licensed market and and in the roles that you're that you're in now? How has it been for you? Yeah, so you know, I've spent twenty years, as we've said, <laughs> in this game, and uh, you know, it hasn't been easy. I'm also disabled. I'm also Jewish. There's like a whole lot of things that make me different than the average bear. Um, and the first thing I think I learned was to hold my head high up and, and just, I guess, not to be crass, but get some balls, right? And just not let anyone push me around, not let anyone bully me. And uh, I've worked in some tough, tough situations with some tough, tough people. And I just, I hold firm and I hold strong. And I think that's what's carried me through um, in such a difficult industry. And you know, especially being illegal up, up until two years ago, I was working in the Wild West, anything could happen, um, you know, and, and operating, um, I operated here, I operated in the Caribbean as well, which is very male dominated uh, culture. And I managed to sort of operate there. And I, I always was blown that like, right, I, I could operate in the Caribbean and, and be able to be respected in the same level as any man that I dealt with. And if they felt at first that they, I was beneath them by the end of the conversation, that, that feeling went away. And, and they were like, well, you know, she's serious. But it's, you know, again, it's just, I always say, you know, I do what I do and I do it in cannabis, right? So it doesn't really matter uh, what industry you're in, right? If you're selling shoes, diamonds, whatever, there's always a level of, of, I guess, disrespect that's going to happen when you're a person that is different or of, or of the sex that's seen as the lesser than, right? And in order to, to overcome that barrier, and the barrier is that I've always had, you know, the barrier of being disabled, the barrier of being a Jewish person, the barrier of not being able to speak English when I first moved to this country. Again, it's a lot of just, it comes from the inside and leadership and strength come from the inside. So for any woman who's looking to, to move forward in any industry that is male dominated, or she, you know, or if you feel like you're made to feel lesser than you are not and, and hold that strength and use it to propel you forward as opposed to letting people put you down and push you down. And that's how you rise to the top. Right. And, and I feel like all the women that I work with now and all the women that I've worked with over the last 20 years have led by that essential. Right. Of just like rise to the top and don't be don't let yourself get pushed down because that's someone else's problem. Like their feeling towards women or their feelings towards a, you know, a certain race or sexuality or your disability or whatever it is that they feel makes them better than you. That's their problem. Your problem is to rise above. I so appreciate that spirit of yours. And that's a spirit that runs through a whole cohort of female activists centered around the Toronto scene who have really inspired me just because they, they won't compromise. They won't back down. They are who they are. And if you don't like it, uh, too bad. They're just going to keep on moving anyhow. And, <laughs> and, and, and I love that spirit. You know, one of my hopes is that there are young women who are listening to this podcast, hopefully all around the world, who are looking for a new path in life, a new way to be. 
and are thinking about the cannabis movement and are thinking about the cannabis industry and are hoping that there might be a place uh, for them. Uh, Lorena, what advice do you have for the young women who are listening to this podcast? Well, um, in the cannabis space, I mean, if of course they're interested in the cannabis space or they're already in, in the cannabis industry, just to keep moving forward, perseverance, patience, um, respect, you know, and always give what you want to receive, right? No matter what you um, confront or what comes along in your path, but definitely uh, never stop anything. It's possible. I never, ever, ever thought that, you know, this uh, Chihuahua girl uh, from Mexico was going to be now in this position speaking to legislators. I hated politics so much. I never wanted to have anything to do with it. I just wanted to focus, you know, on, on my company and, and giving education. But then, you know, destiny just took me different directions until, you know, you accept that um, it's part of your mission. So definitely have very, very clear, you know, what's your plan? What's your passion? And take that drive until you accomplish what you came to do, no matter what. And yes, of course, we are in a world that's being dominated by men. And let's just, you know, just take a look at the news and what's going on, you know, our world, unfortunately, it's chaos everywhere. So women, you know, it's our time to lead because men, we love you, Steve, but you guys have been leading you know, this world for many, many, many years, many generations, and it hasn't worked that well. So it's her turn. It's her turn to show, you know, uh, what we can do um, as women, moms, you know, this connection, strong connection with nature, with the plants specifically, because I, I've noticed throughout the years how women connect with the plant so different than men. Um, so I, I just wanted to say, you know, to all the girls, women out there that let's work together, you know, let's also stop fighting between each other because also men tend to say, you know, girls are drama, you know, they're always fighting between each other, you know, that's how they generalize our, our, how we react uh, with other women and we need to change that as well you know we need to work as um, sisters as friends and I've been seeing here in Mexico that the more women come together things start happening faster why I'm not sure it's just this drive that we have and this connection you know to the earth and to really wanting to have a better place for ourselves for our kids as, as a single mom I definitely um, have as a, a priority to have put my my um, little um, granito de arena, <laughs> you know, as the small little stone there, you know, to make this place a better place. So yeah, definitely women, you know, we've seen a lot of changes also around the world. I don't know if you guys saw the manifestation of, of women in Mexico, that definitely 
you know, was a historic day for our country because we were able to see that transition from the from the march that we had. We were protesting against uh, um, feminicidios. Femin, um, how do you say feminicide? Femicide. There you go. So it was more than a hundred thousand women coming together, you know, um, as sisters, moms, friends, etc. And we put our country to shake. Men that were looking at this march and all these women, you know, like so passionate and so strong, men were scared. They were stepping back. They were like, holy cow, this is real. Women are out there and they're not going to stop. So yeah, definitely um, showing that we can do this without violence, without stepping on, on other people, without damaging more people that's already damaged uh, in, in this whole um, legalization of cannabis. So yeah, just stay strong, keep moving forward. Well, we did see the marches in Mexico. And um, I think that the rise of the cannabis plant, the cannabis renaissance, the rediscovery of cannabis, the re-embrace of cannabis all around the world is part of a return to the divine feminine. It's part of getting closer to Mother Earth. It's getting to be, uh, it's a part of us all coming closer to nature, to starting to understand how to make the goods that we need to live, to move on in the world in a way that doesn't cut down the last tree on the, on the planet. Um, a rising, a return to the divine feminine. And, and for, for all of the young women who are listening to this podcast, to you, that means, like Lorena said, your time is now. We need your hearts. We need your souls. We need your brains. We need your strong, resilient, uncompromising, persistent, and bold spirits. Um, men have been running this world for a long time now, and we are lost. And without you, we will not find our way home. And to the young men who are listening to this podcast, our role now is to support this return, this return to the divine feminine. Our role now is to encourage all other men to respect our sisters, to respect our mother, Mother Earth, to conduct ourselves, to walk in this planet in such a way that brings back life rather than taking it away as we've done uh, for way too long. We're going to be moving towards, uh, towards wrapping up right now. I'd just like to give each of you an opportunity to let our audience know about any projects that you're working on that you'd like them to know about, any causes that you would like to promote, um, any other parting words before we move on to the end of the show. Abby? Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm working really hard uh, to make sure that we get we get a, a fair and equitable industry in Canada. Um, I continue my advocacy work um, from 
the inside, but then I also work, um, I've stayed with Normal Canada as an advisor. So I, I help them through and I explain policy to them and I, you know, help them uh, think through ideas and, and how we can move forward on that side. Um, I work with my own team, um, you know, to, to make sure that my province of Ontario uh, moves forward in the right way. And uh, I'm, I'm proud to be a part of a team that is extremely progressive and is looking to lead the way. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. That's a great opportunity for me to, to move forward. And uh, I, you know, I just, I want people who, who look at Canada and say, wow, they did it. You know, look at it as good, bad, what worked, what didn't. And remember that nothing happens overnight, right? So year one started out, this happened. Year two, it progressed. And as we move forward, legalization will get better and better and better. So, you know, push forward with your federal legalization initiatives in your own countries. And remember that day one will never be perfect. Year one probably won't be perfect either. But as we learn and grow and, and understand each other and, and push forward with what will work, right, and, and communicate with each other, I think we will see cannabis and drugs in general become legal all over the world and as the dominoes start to fall let's make them fall correctly and learn from each other and learn from each government's mistakes because once it's legal it's not going to be illegal again and that's the best part thank you thank you so much abby may it all may it all come true lorena we just have a couple of minutes you want to wrap us up yeah uh so we continue with cannabis salud as the main Cannabis Congress in Mexico. This year, 2020, unfortunately, we're not gonna have the Congress as we used to every year. Um, we are offering webinars through our platforms on social media. You can follow us on CannabisSalud.com. Um, and we also are focusing on a campaign a communication and political campaign uh, called uh, the Legalization Movement for 2020 MX. Why for 2020? Because for meaning April, the month April, that was the last month uh, the health ministry and the Senate had one to publish the regulation and to vote on the law initiative. Uh, as I mentioned, because of the pandemic, they had to ask for more time, which for us is just another excuse because um, the health and economic crisis should be the reason why they, you know, um, legalize the industry as soon as possible. So just as a reminder, you know, April of 2020 was your deadline and you guys didn't do it. So the legalization movement for 2020, it's just a reminder that we're here. We're not going anywhere until our legislators do their work. And we invite everybody to support this movement by uh, following us on our social media and our website, which is just like that with numbers for 2020.mx. And um, Register, uh, send us your information so you can receive our newsletters, and we're going to be informing everybody about the legislation process. We are very concerned that there are a lot of frauds happening in Mexico. 
a lot of people saying that there are licenses already and we've seen public Canadian companies coming to buy these licenses for one or two million dollars and they're completely fake it's false it's a fraud and through this movement we also want to alert people what's really happening in Mexico and so yeah this is this is um, the movement that we are putting all of our efforts on so those are my two projects going to be Saluda and the legalization movement all right everybody you have been warned if you really want the real deal on what's going on in Mexico make sure that you tune in to all of Lorena's platforms. Thank you. Uh, as we say goodbye to these two remarkable activists, I'd also like to take a moment to honor my good friend, Julian Staubs. Jules uh, was one of the people who I encountered in my cannabis career that I just immediately felt extraordinarily close to. Uh, he and I really shared the same ideas, the same understanding of cannabis, and, uh, and went about our work in very similar ways. Sadly, Jules was murdered uh, last Thursday, shortly after I recorded a podcast episode with him on his Hotbox podcast. So our condolences go to his wife, Myrtle, to uh, all of the Fields of Green crew in South Africa, and uh, encourage all of our listeners to uh, send their thoughts uh, about Jules uh, to the Fields of Green family. I hope that you've all been inspired and empowered by this episode of the podcast. 50 years ago, when I started talking about legalizing cannabis, people looked at me like I was crazy. They said that it was just some unbelievable, unattainable hippie dream that was never, ever going to happen. Well, today, cannabis is legal. It's legal in my home state of California. It's legal in Canada. It's legal in many other states in this country. It's becoming legal in Mexico and many other parts of the world. And one day, it will be legal everywhere everywhere in this world. And we're going to take the same energy that it took us, it's going to take us to make this big change to make cannabis legal. And we're going to use that same energy to make sure that the new industry that we create is a just industry, is an equitable industry, is an industry that is diverse, that is an industry that walks on this planet with love and respect. We're going to do that because we're not going to take no for an answer. We're going to bring the same level of persistence and commitment that we took for before legalization as we do to what comes after legalization. And finally, I know that many of you who are listening to this podcast are in challenging circumstances, living in countries where cannabis is still very, very much illegal. You may have to hide your cannabis use from your family, from your friends, you may always live in fear of arrest. But know this, that if you love this plant, if you see her as a teacher and a guide, you are not alone. There are hundreds of millions of us all around the world. And we are coming. Change is coming. We will not stop and we will not rest until everybody on this planet who needs cannabis has it and until our last prisoner comes home. 
Until next time, be well, be free.